Again, now we've, we're in this study of the Apostles' Creed, and, and you know, each week we say a few things kind of in way of introduction. And, and one of those is that, you know, there, as we talk about the Apostles' Creed, I realize that there are some people that are probably extremely familiar with it. You know, it's, you maybe grew up at a church or went to a church where you recited it every week, and there are other people in our church that probably have no idea what the Apostles' Creed is. And they're like, I've never heard of that before. And, uh, and, and we've said, again, each week, we're not preaching on the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's an outline of the teaching of what the Bible teaches. And, and so we're preaching on the Scripture. It's not written by the Apostles. It's, it's a reflection of what the church came together and a reflection of the Apostles' teaching. It's the oldest summation of the, you know, the core teaching of the Christian church, the earliest versions going all the way back to 140 AD. And, um, and for centuries, believers of, of all backgrounds, nations, denominations, uh, have recited this together in their worship services. And interesting, even if you go back in church history, in the early church, it was not only often recited, but it was used to teach new believers kind of the foundational teachings of the Christian faith. And it was common for then those new believers to memorize it and then recite it at their baptism service. It was their, their public profession of faith. And, uh, and, and when they recited it, it was something that, again, in that time, uh, especially in the early church, it was something that reciting that Jesus is Lord, reciting these doctrines was actually a dangerous thing to do. It was this kind of uh, reciting, this proclamation that actually led people uh, to be put to death. Now, in doing that, it's almost in some ways seen as a, a pledge, a pledge of allegiance. You know, about 100, 100 years ago, some Christians you know, reflected on the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, and they said that while believers, we should be faithful uh, citizens of our country, we realize that we have even a higher loyalty to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And as a result, they developed the Christian flag, and they developed the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag, which again is a good idea. Um, but historically, what's interesting is that if you look at historically, probably if you say, what's the Pledge of Allegiance of the church Many would say that it was really not a pledge that was modeled after the pledge to the American flag, but it was, it was the Apostles' Creed. You know, that was the pledge of saying, I pledge myself, these are what I believe, and this is what I pledge myself to. And believers have been reciting it together for nearly 1,800 years. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to, is, you know, we've heard it each week, but I'd like to recite it together and ask you in a moment to stand with me and to, and to recite the Apostles' Creed together. It's, it's written, we have a copy in your bulletin. Uh, you could use that. We're also going to put it on the screen. Now, there may be some who aren't believers and, and uh, you don't believe this. In that case, please, you know, feel free to stay seated or to, to not recite it. But for those of us who are believers, this is a statement not only of what we believe, but of the truths that we pledge ourselves to. So I'm gonna ask you to please stand with me as we together uh, proclaim this, this great truth that Christians, again, have been proclaiming for 1800 years, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, 
the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's a great proclamation, and the part that we're going to not only reflect on today and, but dive deeper into is this, this first statement where we talk about Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And we're going to kind of break down not only this part, but the other parts in coming weeks. But what I want you to see, even in this part, is that, is that he brings out really three titles. Three titles of Jesus that are taught throughout Scripture. That Jesus is Christ, the Christ the only Son, and our Lord. And we're going to start out this morning by looking at the passage that we mentioned earlier in Matthew 16. And what we're going to find here is that we have, right off this bat, this great proclamation of who Jesus is, a statement that really starts by, by highlighting the first of these two titles and, and really implies the third. And so what we see is there's this defining question that is behind this whole thing. Who is Jesus? Matthew 13, or 16, verse 13, we read, Now when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's asking his disciples, okay, what's the word on the street? And, you know, here I am, I'm in, you know, near the end of my ministry, people have seen, they've heard, and what is it that people are saying about me? As you're out in the marketplace, what are, what are you hearing? Who do people think I'm, I am? What do they think is going on here? And in verse 14, they responded. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And, and so they say, well, word on the street is that you're maybe a, a reincarnated prophet or you kind of have the spirit of one of those prophets. Because all the guys that are listed here had two things in common. Number one, they were all great prophets. And number two, they were all dead. And so, so he's saying, you know, that, you know you're, you're either you're like Jeremiah or John the Baptist or Elijah or whether you're reincarnated or whether you have their spirit and Jesus uh, asked them a question that, again, is really at the core of what people are asking today. Who do people say that Jesus is? You see, that's not a question just about that. It's about, about now. Everyone has opinions about Jesus. You know, most people, especially in America, everybody's heard about Jesus. They, they have ideas. And, and, and what's interesting is that most people, if you ask, there's some that are very negative, but most people are, are generally positive about Jesus. They think that he was a good teacher, but something less than God. And so if we ask people every day, you know, we're going to hear, you know, well, he was a, a good man. He was a, a prophet. He was a great teacher, a great moral teacher. He was a, a great model, a great example of what it means to live out good moral life. And, but they often stop there. But the problem is, is that if you really study the whole Bible, what you find is that those opinions really are impossible to hold honestly. Because the fact is, one of the things that when you see the Bible is that Jesus claimed to be God. And the fact of the matter is, is that when you claim to be God, if you have a claim to be God, you can't be a good moral teacher or a great example that isn't God. And C.S. Lewis really drew this out, but, but the idea that, that he argued is that, you know, if you claim to be God, either you're a terrible liar and deceiver, you know, you're out there trying to deceive people, almost like a Hitler that's, you know, trying to get people to follow you in loyalty, and, and you're an evil person, or you're a deceived person, a crazy person who really thinks that he's God when he's not, or he is exactly who he claims he is. And the only options that we have before us are those three options. But you can't say that he was a good moral teacher, a great example that wasn't God. That's not possible. So the question is not necessarily just even who do people say, 
But ultimately, Jesus turns it around and makes it personal because the ultimate question is, who do you say? Who do I say? Who is Jesus Christ to me? And that's where Jesus goes in Matthew 16. Look at it after asking disciples, what do other people say about me? In verse 15, he turns it to them and he said, but who do you say that I am? And, and that's where we need to go. It's personal. It's not what do other people think. What do I think? And, and, and it's not just even, you know, what do I think about Jesus, but who is he? You see, because Jesus doesn't just want a theological answer. It isn't, well, let me give this theology of, well, Jesus is the son of God and he's born of a virgin. And No, he wants us to answer, who am I to you? Practically, what does it mean? What, what is, when, I, when you look at your life, what role do I play in your life? It's not just who do you believe I am, but, but who am I to you practice, practically in practice in, in life? You see, because there's a big difference between those two questions. It's possible, and there are many people that might have a right theology about God. But you look at it, and, and James talks about this, that you know, even the demons have the right theology about God. They have, they have perfect theology. They know that Jesus is, is, is God better than any of us. But the fact is, it doesn't change them. You see, it's not just that what we think. It's what we have embraced in our practice. Have we really embraced him as the Christ, as the Son, as my Lord? So you see him asking this question, who do you say I am? And then we look in verse 16, Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's saying, we, we think you're more than what they're saying. We don't think you're just a, a living prophet. We don't think you're reincarnation. We don't think you're like all the prophets that have come before. No, you are the Christ. You are God's provision. You are the one that is bringing the healing power of God. You are the one that is, that is entering into the brokenness of the world to bring redemption and healing. You're God himself who has come into the world to meet our greatest need. Now, let's break that down. The first part of his answer is right there when, when Peter says, you are the Christ. And what does it mean when you say that Jesus is the Christ? You see, I think a lot of times, some of us might think that when we refer to Jesus, we refer to him as Jesus Christ, and we think that Christ is kind of like his last name. You know, some Michael Ribka, and so, you know, Michael and the Ribka, that's my family, and a lot of people always see that as, well, Jesus Christ. Well, that's, you know, that's his second name. And, but the thing is that that's not at all, that's, that's totally wrong. We may use it that way, but in reality, Christ is a title. It's not a name. It's, a, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. That he's saying, we believe that you are the Messiah, the anointed one. When he says that you are the Christ, he's, he's saying, you're not like all the other prophets. All the other prophets pointed to the Christ, to the Messiah that was coming, but you are the fulfillment of those prophecies. You are the one that has come to, to fulfill them. You are the one through whom God will actually accomplish that which he has promised to do. You're the one through whom God will meet our greatest needs. Now, what's really interesting in this is that if you study the New Testament, not only the New Testament, if you study the history, history around the New Testament, what's amazing is that all the Jewish people in that time knew about the prophecies of the Messiah, and they were all excited about it. They were anticipating the coming Messiah. They were looking for and longing for the Christ to come. But you know what's interesting is when the Christ came, almost all of them missed it. And we have to ask why. And the answer is that, is that in short, they had in their minds an expectation of a certain kind of Messiah. 
They wanted him to be the kind of Messiah that, that was going to come and that was going to deliver them politically, to, to throw off the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they had an expectation of a Messiah they expected and they wanted. And when Jesus wasn't what they expected and wanted, they rejected him for who he in fact was. Now let me show you that from John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus is at the end of his ministry. And, and at the end of his ministry, we read in John 10:24. he looks to the religious leaders, and, uh, and they come and they approach him with a question. They said, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're basically saying, we're longing for the Christ. We're longing for the Messiah. And if you're it, then tell us plainly. Now look at what Jesus says in response. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not amongst my sheep. And, and they're saying, tell us plainly. And they're saying, I have been telling you. I have been telling you plainly. And now you have to say, okay, why in the world is this confusion? Well, if you read the whole Gospel of John, what you see is that it becomes clear that the confusion came from the fact that the, that the religious people, the Jewish people at that time, had an expectation of Messiah. Again, they were looking for a political Messiah that would come and that would accomplish a political uh, 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 victory that would throw off the Roman Empire. They would give them political power. That's the Messiah they wanted. And they consistently read the Bible selectively, which we can do. We've got to be careful about that. That we can come to the Bible and we look for what we want to find. And, and if we do that, we'll generally find what we're looking for. We're reading it out of context, and that's what they did. They were finding these passages that seemed to affirm their hopes and their expectations, their de the, the desires. They interpreted all the Old Testament prophecies to interpret or to say what they wanted to, to, wanted to hear. So the problem is, is that they had the wrong view of the Messiah. And, and, and all their desires, all their expectations, they came and they were looking at Jesus and said, well, you don't match up. And every, every once in a while, they would see something, and they would see him doing the, you know, doing the food, and they said, well, maybe he could be the king. They would see him do certain things, and they would think, maybe he can be. But what happened is throughout his ministry, he would come and say, well, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of God. And he would come, but he would redefine it and say, what I've come to do is not to overthrow Rome. I've come to deal with the problem of your sin. I've come to deal with the, the biggest battle that you have, the biggest oppression, the greatest need. If God has come to meet, is sending the Messiah to come and meet the greatest need, the greatest need that you have is not what you think it is. And if you want a God that's going to come and serve you and meet your desires, the fact is that you have a wrong idea of Messiah and you're going to miss me when I come. You see, the greatest need that we have is, is a spiritual battle, dealing with the oppressive power of sin, not the political power battle dealing with Rome. They wanted a Messiah that would humble the, Roman, or the Romans and, and force their enemies to bow to their authority in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, no, the problem is not that authority there. It's the problem in your heart. It's not that Rome needs to bow to God. It's you need to bow to God. I need to bow to God. Each one of us need to surrender to God's authority in our own lives. The problem is our sin. But because Jesus was not the Messiah they expected or, the, or what they demanded, they were never able to hear this. So Jesus is saying, I've told you clearly. I keep telling you. And they're like, well, I, don't, I don't hear it. See, what the, real, the problem is, is that really at the core, what, what is our greatest need? 
So when we think about God and we think, God, I need you, what is the need that we think that God is going to come and meet? And for many of us, we have this idea of, you know, if I have this need, and God, if you just, you know, give me this right relationship, if you fix this problem, if you give me this money, if you heal this person, if whatever it would be, God, if you do that, then I'll believe you. And you know where I see this played out practically? I talked to, by far, the number one reason that I talk to people where they talk about, well, I dropped out from the church. The number one reason is I had this need, and I prayed to God, and he didn't do it. I asked God to fix this problem, this situation, to heal this person or to, to give me this thing, and I prayed to God and he didn't do it. And there may be some here that, that you are far from God, that you, have, that you have wandered away, and you're angry because God didn't show up when you had a real need. And you see, it's the same problem that what you see here with these people you know, way back then. We're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for God's provision, but I will tell you what that provision needs to be. And God, if you do what I demand, then I'll follow you. But Jesus said, no, the greatest need is not your political one. The greatest need is a spiritual one. And really understanding what it means to embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Christ, means that I accept him as God's provision for my greatest need that I look at this and I realize that I've got to accept his definition for my greatest need. It isn't that God is unconcerned about all those other things in our life. He is. But the fact of the matter is, is that, is that I can't demand to him that he's going to do what I expect, that he's basically at my service, that I'll tell him what the need is. And God, if you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to, you've got to perform my way. No, I've got to realize that he is God and that he's come and he said, this is the greatest need that you have. This is what I've come to, the, the need that I've come to meet. We've got to accept that he is the Messiah God who's come to meet the greatest need, which is our forgiveness of sins. Again, I, it's sad, you know, so often you'll hear people, well, if God was this, I would expect him to do this. I'd expect him to, and, and what we're basically saying is not, I don't come and worship the God, the Messiah that is, this is the God that I expect. This is a God of my own making. And my friends, we've got to realize the only way to come to Jesus Christ is to come to him for who he is, as the Christ. Don't let your desires or expectations about God, about who he is or what he should do, don't let that shape you and so that you're coming and reinterpreting the Bible and taking passages of the Bible out of context to agree with what you expect. No, we need to realize that we need to let our ideas shape us, or, or God's ideas reshape us, that my ideas about God are wrong, that God has revealed himself. I can't read into the Bible my expectations and, and, and change it. Now I've got to say, God, you show me who you are. And Jesus Christ is the Christ, is God's provision, coming to meet our greatest, our greatest need. And coming to him means, God, I agree with you. My greatest need is my sin need, and I ask you to forgive me, and I accept you as the Christ who, is, who is, offers forgiveness, not healing from oppression out there, but, Father, from the oppression within here. It's not that some other power will surrender, but will I surrender in my own heart? Now, these titles all go together, because what you see is even when Peter, what did he say? He said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the same title that we see in the Apostles' Creed. 
that Jesus Christ, God's only son. The second idea is that is, is related, that Jesus is God's only son. Now, it's not a claim that in some way that Jesus was the offspring of God, you know, or even that he reflected some of God's character, but it's actually a claim that Jesus was God himself. You see, in that day, the, the term, when you talk about son of, it actually was something that was an idiom, a saying that had a much deeper meaning than what we would understand today. We don't use it this way. Oftentimes, when you say that something was the son of, it would be a way of saying that that, that person was the exact perfect representation of what he was being called the son of. So when Peter is saying that Jesus is the son of God, he's saying that you are God himself, that you are the representation, that you're God in human flesh. And this is what, this is again at the end of Jesus' ministry, and he comes to this conclusion because Jesus himself had been teaching this since the beginning of his ministry. I think, you know, for those of us that have been part of the church, you've seen, we've, you know, we studied, a, had a series back a little bit ago on the, on the Gospel of John. And what we saw, the, the primary theme of the whole first half of the Gospel of John is Jesus again and again saying, I am. All the I am statements, and they're all statements of saying, I am God. They're in different ways of saying, I am Almighty God. Ultimately, you know, the, the strongest of them all, John 8:58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, not I was. He's actually literally claiming the name of God that God himself claimed back in Exodus that I am Yahweh, I am God. I not only pre-existed before Abraham, but I did so as the creator. And I will tell you that when we hear this, it's, it's, it's teaching an idea that, that some of us may struggle with. You say, well, wait a second. You know, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about I believe in the God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And, and I thought, that's God, and how is Jesus God? Well, for those that are maybe new to the Christian faith, it's an idea of teaching something of the, what we often call the Trinity, that we believe that there is one God, one in essence, but that God is, is the one God is, is expresses himself in three persons, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're one in essence, they're totally one, they're totally united in who they are and their character, but they're three distinct persons. Now you say, well, I kind of, don't understand that. That's kind of hard to understand. Well, I agree with you. And if you say, well, explain it to me, I'd say, I can't because I don't understand it. You see, one of the things when we talk about the whole idea of, of the Trinity is that we've got to realize that, that God is, is other than us. You know, one of the things when we talked about, even the first week when we talked about the whole nature of, 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 of who God is, this idea that, you know, that God is has revealed himself so that he is knowable, but he's not comprehensible. He's revealed himself so that we can know him, but we've got to realize that, 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 that he's beyond our ability to comprehend. And we use the illustration, which I think is so helpful for me. If we had a couple ants that were sitting there looking at this whole thing and they were discussing what it's like to be human, how well do you think they would understand it? Well, not very well. There's a huge gap between, I don't know what you call humanity and ant, ant entity or whatever you call it, but there's this huge gap between being an ant and being a human. Now, what we have to realize is that we're closer to the ant than we are to God. We're both created beings. God is the creator. 
And so here we are trying to figure out, what do you think it's like to be God? Well, the Trinity doesn't make sense for me. How can one somebody be one and three? I don't get it. And some people will reject it because they don't understand it. And I'm saying, what a low view of God. If you have, a, you have to have a view of God that you understand, that's not much of a view of God. I personally, as much as I'm at times frustrated with it, I personally am really comfortable with the fact that God is bigger than me, that is bigger than my mind, that there's certain things that I can't understand, and I'm saying, praise be to God that I've got this almighty God that doesn't fit in my little box, because if it's a God that I could totally explain, that's not much of a God. So are we uncomfortable with it? Yeah. Do you, you know, are we uncomfortable with something that seems to be outside of our logic? Yes. But... That's part of what we have to realize is the nature of God. So Jesus has revealed himself as God. And what we've got to realize is that you see, he's said very clearly, but it's not just that when he reveals himself, then you say, okay, that's theological, but practically what does it mean? Because it's huge to understand what it means. It's huge to understand what it means to accept him and to embrace him as, as who he is as God. What does it mean to really believe in Jesus as God? You see, I think that there are many, again, today who claim to maybe be Christians or maybe be followers of Christ, and, and they have a view of God that is, is a good teacher or as an advisor, uh, but not as God. Maybe, I, I, I thought of this even as an example, of, could be illustrated maybe in a bumper sticker. Now, I'm, I've got to say, I'm not a big fan of Christian bumper stickers. I'm not against them. If you have one, that's fine. I'm I'm not a big one of myself personally. It's not, I don't want to put one on my car. Um, now, probably a couple reasons. I don't think they're the most effective a tool of evangelism. You know, so I've never talked to someone and they've said, oh man, I came to Christ and God's really got a hold of me. And I said, well, tell me, how did God come to Christ? Well, I was driving down the road and I saw a bumper sticker and I'm like, wow, that's the truth I need. And man, I just pulled over the side and I've, I've never had that happen. So it's, it's not necessarily the best evangelistic tool. But secondly, you know, in a confession, um, I realize that when you have a bumper sticker, then everything that you do is somewhat a reflection of Christ because people see the bumper sticker and they see you're driving. And in honest confession, I have to admit that not everything I do in my car is always necessarily the best testimony. Uh, <laughs> you know, they say that, you know, the last parts of your body to be uh, fully realized sanctification are you're in your back pocket where your wallet is and your right foot. And, and I kind of relate to that. And, and you, you, know, you realize, okay, if I have a bumper sticker, I've got to be a good example. And, and I, I can think of a time where, an extreme example of this. I remember I was at, down in Florida and I lived down there. And I'm, I see a guy that's driving around and he's got a bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus. And so I, I looked at that, I just gave him a little honk and waved to him. And he waved back, not with a hand, but with a finger. And, uh, you know, it's just like... Well, that's, that's, that's a nice wave. It's, it's like, you know, maybe you shouldn't be having that bumper sticker. I don't know. And then the idea is, you know, if, if you have the bumper sticker, you, you want to represent Christ well. Now, again, not that I would do that, but, but I think it is important anytime that we go out there and pe people know that we're a follower of Christ, boy, I should be really careful the way that I present myself. But the last thing is that I think some of the bumper stickers may have been designed with a good intention, but their message doesn't always communicate the whole truth. Um, a good example of that is, if some of you remember, it was really big for a while, the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. You all remember that? Um, and, and a lot of people might think that's ideal, 
And it's like, okay, God, you know. But it, and, and a lot of people, I think that's what they do in practice. But it shows the fallacy of this whole idea of do you accept Christ as, as a teacher, as an example, or do you accept him as God? Because if, it Jesus, if Jesus Christ is indeed God, then his appropriate place in my life is not in the passenger seat commenting on how I'm driving and giving advice on what I should do. If Jesus Christ is indeed God, then the proper place is to say, okay, God, I'm putting you in the I'm driver's seat. You're the driver. I'm not listening to your advice and deciding whether to accept it or reject it or hearing your commenting on whether I'm living right or wrong. No, the fact is, is that if you're God, then the fact is I accept you and embrace you and submit to you as the one who is the designer of my life, who knows better than I do what's right and wrong, who knows better than I do what's ultimately going to make me happy, who knows these things. And there are times that I want to do that and I'm tempted to do that. And but if you're my co-pilot, I'm going to ask your advice. But if you're really God, then I'm, I'm not going to ask for your advice. I'm going to ask for your direction. And there may be times that I, I don't like it. It doesn't make sense. But I submit to it because you're God. Because you know better than I do. And because that's the way that I relate to God. You see, I, I said that what we saw in the first two titles is, is, what, uh, is what Peter said. The third one is really implied. And what we saw in this whole thing is that I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And this last title is implied in what we've said up till now. And it's clearly taught in scripture that Jesus Christ is also our Lord. If I accept him as, as Christ, as God's provision, if I embrace him as God, it means that I will also then also follow him and submit to him as, as a Lord, as the Lord of my life. And if I don't, if my life doesn't bear witness of that, then I have to really question, have I made him my Lord? Have I accepted him as my God? Have I submitted to him as, and his, his provision as, as Christ? In 1 John 1.16, John teaches, if we say we have fellowship with him while he, we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. And what he's saying is that if we say that we have fellowship with God, and meanwhile our life shows no fruit of that, that our life isn't being changed at all, we're lying to ourselves. If we say that we have a relationship with God, but we haven't, in a sense, made him Lord, because if we make him Lord, it will make itself evident in our lifestyle. And if that's the case, our lifestyle reveals the truth, not our words. And again, I, I talk to many people all the time who say, well, I have a relationship with God, and, you know, and, and, um, and you know, but their life, it's, it's just kind of what I do on Sunday morning. Go to church, and, and, it, and the rest of their life shows no fruit of that. And you say, do you really? See, there are a lot of people, it's common to say, well, I can accept him as, Je as my Savior. I can pray and ask Jesus as my Savior. And, and meanwhile, I can reject him practically as the Lord of my life. And really, when we say this, what we're saying is, well, I'll acknowledge that I have a sin problem that separates me from God. I have a sin problem that keeps me from experiencing heaven, and I know that, and and so we acknowledge that need, and I acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ who came to meet that need. And so Jesus came and he died on the cross, you know, to take the punishment for the sins. And so I'm going to ask Jesus to forgive my sins, to take away my sin and the punishment that I deserve for the sin. And then, Jesus, I want you to give me your righteousness. I want you to give me heaven that comes with that. But the problem is when we're doing that, really what we're asking for is, is spiritual fire insurance. You know, what we're doing is we're saying, 
you know, God, I want you to change my eternal destiny. I don't want hell. I want to go to heaven, so I want the eternal destiny. But I don't want you to change my life. You say, I want the benefits that come with what you did on the cross, but I don't really want to surrender to you as, as God. As, I don't want to give you the place of Lord in my life. In fact, I want to be in charge now. I want to pray the prayer, but I want to be in charge. I want to call my own shots. And what we're saying is ultimately, I want to be my own God. I want to be God of my own life. I want to continue the same lifestyle of sin that I had before. I want to do whatever I want to do and just play. I can do it and then ask Jesus to forgive me. And because he died on the cross, he's got to do it. I've got him under, I've got him over a barrel. He's got to forgive me. I want all the benefits of what he did all the while continuing to reject him and living the life that I lived before. See, but the Bible doesn't teach that that's a possibility. It doesn't teach that I can accept part of Jesus and reject part of him. Um, look at what Paul says about this kind of foundational, you know, when you talk about the foundational first declaration of, of faith of the early church. And Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So what is it saying? It's not only what we believe, but it's what we confess that Jesus is Lord. It's what we confess not only in our words, but it's implied in our actions, in our life, that that's the life that we live. Why? Because coming to Christ means that we acknowledge our sin and we ask God to forgive us and also change us. Okay, what's our core sin? If, if you were to think, what's the core sin, the number one thing that at the core that God needs to get to and forgives me of? What, that, what's the core sin that I need to confess? The sin that's behind everything else. And we might think, well, I did that, I did that. What's the worst thing that I did? Well, no, there's something that is behind everything else, the core sin, and the core sin is the pride by which we seek to be our own God. It's the sin of, in a sense, saying to God, I'm going to choose what's right and wrong. I'm going to call my own shots in this area of my life. And sometimes I can come and I can say, well, I accept God, and I'm following him here, but I'm not following him here. And really what we're saying is that, God, I'll follow you as long as you agree with me. But the fact is, is when we disagree, I've got the final say. You see, you're in the co-pilot's place, and I'll listen to your advice, but I'm in the pilot. I am the Lord. I am the director of my I'm my God. And that's the number one sin that is the core of all sin. And to say that we can, you know, ask Jesus to be our Savior, not our Lord, is saying, okay, God, I can acknowledge all the bad things that I've done that are a side effect of that sin of me calling myself God but I'm not willing to confess my sin of being my own God. And I don't want you to change me there. I still want to be my own God. I want to still be in charge of my life. I still want to have the right to recall what's ultimately right or wrong for me. Um, but, but save me from all that I've done and from the consequences. And no, my friend says, again, if you accept Jesus, you accept him for who he is, not just what he's done and who is he. He is Jesus Christ Son of God, the Lord. See, what does it mean to submit to Christ as Lord? It means that I accept him not just as Savior for what he's done, but I embrace him for who he is, as my God, my Savior, my Lord, the Lord of my life. And I can't do one without the other. Now, does that mean that you have to fix yourself up and change? And, you know, and, and, you know no, no, that's not at all the case because Christianity isn't about performance. It isn't about your good works or my good works. I don't fix myself up to come to God. I come to God as I am. 
with my mess, with all my brokenness. And if you might be here and say, well, I'm not good enough to come to God. Well, no, none of us are. See, it's not that when I submit to him as my Lord and I do that first and then I accept him. No, what it means is that I come to him and I say, God, I agree with you, I'm a sinner. And I give you the right to pour out any area of sin in my life. And when you point it out, God, I might struggle with you. But God, ultimately, I give you the right to not only point it out, but to change my heart, to change me to be the person that you want me to be. And in the Christian life, there are still things after you know, you know, 45 plus years that I'm still struggling to fully surrender to Christ. But you know what? I've submitted to him as my Lord. And he's working that truth out in my life slowly and through time. And so the question that we each have to ask, have you done that? Have you, have you embraced him? Can you say that Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus, in Christ, God's provision, the Son of God, the one who is God, not my advisor, not the one who knows a little better than I am, not a good teacher, but God who is my designer and who deserves my, my loyalty, my worship. Do I submit to him as my Lord? And saying, God, here's my mess. I can't fix it, but you know what? I come to you and I bring my mess and I submit to you and I ask you to change me to make me the person that you want me to be. Now, there may be some that you've done that and even in the past. And if you're honest with yourselves, you know, you say, well, I've got this area of life where I've taken back control. You know, I've kind of put them out of the, you know, the, the pilot seat and I'm taking, you know, I'm, I'm listening to them, maybe kind of avoiding them and ignoring them. My friends, there may be some of us here that we've done that. And again, it's not necessarily that we have to accept Christ again and that we lose our salvation, but we get out of fellowship with him when we do that. Because the only way to accept Christ is to surrender in principle to him as Lord, that I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ, I not only have the right beliefs that he rose him from the dead, but I confess with my mouth, with my life. And in our life, there's going to be times that I take things back and that I start calling my own shots again because I really don't like what he has to say. But my friends, that's where we have to be honest with ourselves. And saying, and what we're doing is ultimately we're rejecting him as Lord in that area of our life. We're saying that I had reserved the right to call what's right and wrong. I know better than God. And there may be some here today where that's where you're at and God's trying to get your attention and he's trying to say, okay, it's, yeah, you've accepted me before, but are you willing to come and are you willing to surrender this area? And I don't even need to point out what it is because God's already pointing it out in your life. You know exactly what he's saying. And are you going to continue to run away from him? Are you going to continue to ignore what he's calling you to? Or are you going to come and you're going to say, God, I not only want to say the words, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, my Lord but I want to proclaim that with my words, with my mouth, with my heart. And if you're there today, God's going to meet you. Please don't walk out of here still struggling against him. Surrender to what God is doing because he's going to meet you, whether it's for the first time or whether it's come and just surrendering areas that you've taken back. Come and experience his healing, his power, his provision. He is the Christ. He is the provision that we greatly need. But we have to come to him as as the Christ who is, and surrender to his call upon our lives.
Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.